Hi, and welcome to a small, medium at large podcast. I'm your host, Gail Heisen, bringing you intimate stories that heal. I want to say thank you to all our subscribers, to all the people who have shared and liked, and also the comments have been really just such thoughtful and really kind and nice things. And I just want to thank everybody for taking the time to share their feelings about our shows. And I also want to mention that at this point, I've had quite a few interviews on a show called New Thinking Aloud with Jeffrey Mishlove. So if you want to find out things about Mongolians, shamanism, Weechol, things that I've also had happen in my life, you're more than welcome to check out that that, that those shows on his, his station. But I also wanna say that he has amazing people that he interviews. So once you find him, you'll find out that this is a great channel to keep. So I'm just recommending you all check into New Thinking Aloud with Jeffrey Mishlove. He's been doing this for almost 30 years. So he's quite an amazing man. Anyhow, today we have another amazing man joining us today. And his name is Howard Eisenberg. And I want to tell you a little bit about Howard, and I'm just going to give you a little short bio, and then we're going to bring him on. Howard Eisenberg is a medical doctor with additional graduate training in both psychology and psychiatry. He has been a lecturer in parapsychology at the University of Toronto and an associate professor of medicine at the University of Vermont. He is also the CEO of the international consultancy Sintrek Incorporated. On a more personal level, he's been a passionate, lifelong quest to discover the true natures of reality. He was awarded a graduate degree in Canada at McGill University for his parapsychological research on telepathy. He then pioneered the instruction of parapsychology as a regular credited course at the University of Toronto. Almost half a century ago, he authored his first trailblazing book, Inner Spaces, Parapsychological Explorations of the Mind. The book, this book is the culmination of a successful quest to learn how reality really works. Today, we're going to talk about his newest book, Dream It, To Do It, The Science and the Magic. And let's welcome Howard Eisenberg here today from Canada. Hi, Howard. Welcome. Hi, Gail, and welcome to all your viewers. Enjoy this. Thank you. Welcome to the opportunity. It's a pleasure to have you. I, I always start my guests back to, into their childhood. Mm -hmm. And what I'd like to find out here with you, because I had read something mm -hmm. about this in your book, which is when did this passion for uh, uh, discovery of the true nature of reality begin for you? As soon as I realized I was sentient. <laughs> um, right back, early childhood, just curiosity. I wanted to know, I wanted to understand, I wanted to learn. And did you have good mentors or teachers or were your parents? None. I had none on, on this level of reality, mm -hmm. none. So it was something that you had a strong feeling and passion to wanna to know why are we here? but it wasn't something that was given, you weren't, uh, you know, people weren't helping you to, to discover this. this no, was I mean, quite, quite the opposite. I, I, I was brought up by very loving parents, but this was totally contrary to their interests. In fact, I remember in later years of my father's life asking him just on a walk, 
Dad, do you ever wonder about what it's all about? He said, no. <laughs> <laughs> so I wasn't discouraged, but I wasn't encouraged. And I had no you know, role models or mentors back then. So it was all from within. And it wasn't a choice. It just was there. And so when did you start in, you know, investigating into other teachers and mentors and people that uh, are on a spiritual path? Did that come much, much later in life or was no, that part no, of your work? No, no. Um, I'm 75 now, so it's a long life to remember. <laughs> right but um, I think I started that as an intentional quest to, to try to find out more information yeah. and, and, and who some of the, hope you're okay, and who some of the um, prominent people were in, in science and philosophy and theology, broadly speaking. I think that started really when I was around 14 or 15. And I actually had an interesting experience. I somehow found a newsletter this is before the internet, obviously. Um, so I don't know where, like God knows where. Um, <laughs> fantastically interesting. And it was offering a philosophical interpretation of the New Testament, correlating it, and this has been years ago, um, to what was being discovered in physics, and particularly in the quantum realm. Um, I became so intrigued, and here I was at 15, 16, somewhere in that ballpark, that I wrote to the editor of it just to ask some questions and compliment them as well. And this led to a dialogue. And at one point, they invited me to become an assistant editor. They had no idea I was a young teenager. Otherwise, oh, <laughs> so this is really appropriate. <laughs> but my point being, it was like even on that level, intellectually, aside from experientially, it was deep and strong from an early age. Well, thank you. That's a great, I love getting these little stories because I find that's the intimate part of our conversation. Mm -hmm. And um, <laughs> I want to say that's mm -hmm. about the age for me too, when I was doing the beginning mm -hmm. of my most, uh, you know, in, in my own, on my own, you know, I was doing tarot cards or thinking about, mm -hmm. I was reading Thinking and Destiny and things that mm -hmm. were not necessarily other teenagers were actually doing at the time. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure maybe like me, you might have felt different when you were a teenager growing up than other teenagers, because that kind of work, what you were doing in reading, they weren't really, I don't think your friends were all reading that sort of stuff back then. No, I, I don't think any of them back in my you know, earlier uh, years, again, shared that at all. Mm -hmm. When I reached perhaps around uh, 2021, I started venturing out. So I started going down to some meetings in the United States where I met people like Dr. Stanley Krippner, I think oh, I was in my young 20s. Oh, that's how, that's how, oh, you've known Oh, yeah, him. we go back, I think, at least half century, I think. Yes. I, I think I want to tell our listeners here, the reason that we, we, we have uh, Howard here as our guest today is because my dear friend Stanley Krippner is an even longer friend to uh, Howard, and he recommended we connect with each other. And so we've had Stanley on our show in an earlier episode, in case any of our listeners would like to know who Stanley Krippner is. Uh, he, to me, he's one of the most amazing, inspirational men I know, and I'm just honored to be his friend. His Likewise. work in parapsychology and dreams and his, 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 his travels of the world, are an, he's an amazing human being. So you met him when you were 21 in your early 20s. Roughly, my early 20s. Again, it's a long time to remember. Yes, I know what you mean. <laughs> so... so I, I want to ask about, um, we, we want to talk here today about your book, and uh, I really wanted to start off with a question that you have, which is, how does reality work? 
Well, that was, as you're asking me, my, my early you know, quest to understand that. And it all clicked, crystallized a few years ago. And don't ask me to be more specific. <laughs> my right brain yeah. doesn't work that way. So I'll say, I'll, say, I'll, I'll say three or four years ago, I, was, um, I had left my interest aside in terms of the academic special interest in parapsychology for a few decades. As I went on, I became a business consultant. I'm a medical doctor too. I had a psychotherapy practice, did some entrepreneurial things. Um, so a variety of things that I was insatiably curious. So like, even as fascinating as parapsychology was, I still had no everything else to be sure I was missing something else out. So this, this went on, you know, for some time and I can easily get, get lost in my own, you know, um, stories here for you, but, um, the, the decision to pursue this more seriously as witnessed by my book right now, only really came back to me about three years ago. And it started, it was precipitated by an old friend of mine who does um, therapeutic touch and is one of the leaders in that field, uh, Crystal Hawk, who invited me to do a keynote presentation for a group of practitioners of therapeutic touch. And I had done one before some years ago, but many years ago. And taking my academic side seriously, I decided to just, you know, do a blitz of all the recent literature for like three decades or so <laughs> and be right on top of it. Um, and plus, I have these multiple interests. So it's not just in parapsychology, it really isn't things like quantum physics, and also the wisdom traditions, and I can't name them all, just almost everything. So it was an incredible data dump. And I started coming to the realization that something I was fighting intuitively, going to your question, is the reality. So I was trained as a scientist from an early age, and I was interested in that way of thinking, testing out things, not taking things for granted, not just relying on dogmatic faith or, or peer pressures. And that's partly why I didn't have external direction, as I said to you earlier in my life, it was from the inside. Mm -hmm. It's kind of beating to the, um, Susie marching to the beat of minor drummer, so to speak. What started to come to mind though, three years ago, as I was looking at all the literature again, having again, a bit more of a vantage point because I'd left it for a few decades, was how despite being a scientist, I knew the working assumption that the brain produces the mind consciousness was just an assumption, but nevertheless, as you know, it's the prevailing accepted one scientifically and in most people's understanding, uh, certainly in the Western world, that's, that's how they've been taught and they, it's what they believe and, and then, in an unquestioned way. I've also done research in psychology as part of my, my training and my interest in not just on the clinical side. And I knew that with all the information that was coming up, we still had no way of explaining consciousness, how we have awareness. And that was a long time, like, like you know, looking through it now, over half centuries, I say, thinking like, we don't even have a theory to possibly explain how the material brain can generate, give rise to immaterial consciousness, not even a theory. In fact, as I got deeper into it, which I reveal in my book, the evidence is actually exactly the opposite way. And I came to the realization that our whole notion of materialism, which we sometimes call academically, the materialistic reductionist paradigm of reality, the assumption 
that everything ultimately can be explained in physical terms, be it particles, forces, fields. That's the assumption. It's an unquestioned assumption. What I came to realize is it's a metaphysical assumption. As ironic as it sounds, it's not a scientific one. Mm -hmm. There's no evidence for it. Even the physicists say, there's no particles. <laughs> as you may know, without you know, getting, getting uh, uh, too deep into that, but I cover that in my book. Um, and the research of the physicists very much correlates with that of the wisdom traditions and mystical experiences. And suddenly it was all connected for me. And I realized, and, and here's the line to your question again, you know, so what is your understanding? What is reality? As told to me by a kahuna 40 odd years ago in Hawaii, one of the leaders of, you know, the Polynesian ancient religion of the Hunas, he said, it's all in the mind or toward in more modern uh, parlance. It's about the primacy of consciousness. It all comes from the mind, not our minds, not the minds, you know, as we think of it normally, something much more expansive and beyond words. We can't simply put words to it, but it's the source of everything. And there's so much evidence of it. One example that, again, I build up with some real illustrated examples because it's so I think, powerful in my book. Everything we've invented, and you're hearing me use that word broadly, everything, everything came out of our imagination. That's where it starts. So yes, we're working right now as we talk and we're connecting with a materialistic technology, but one that was envisioned in imagination. I find it fascinating these days that the old notion of alchemy, which we supposedly discredited, you know, saying it was just, you know, uh, foolish thinking or superstition. We're doing it now with our smartphones. When we write these apps, we're thinking of how playing with bits of data, we can influence things materially. You know, I so mean, I didn't fully want to come to that realization because, yes. you know, another side of that is, okay, so if, it's all wrong out there. One, there's no um, way of really relating and sharing this with others on this plane of reality, because uh, this is part of the illusion. It, it, it's a part of reality, but it's only a very small part of the whole picture. And if you take it in its entirety, that there's ultimately one mind, one consciousness, I call it universal mind, universal consciousness, God consciousness, if you like, well, you know, the expression, one is a lonely number. Mm -hmm. So I suddenly felt this like almost loneliness. Oh my God, like I, I have this realization, but I'm all alone. But unfortunately I bounced out of that and realized, no, I'm connected to everything and everyone. <laughs> so that part was enlightening and energizing. And without planning to do so, I started realizing there's a book that wants to come out of me. Um, and then shortly after that, we hit the pandemic, which disrupted so many things mm -hmm. and gave me more time to be aware and reflect at what was going on also in the rest of the world, the new stream and so on, to reflect on it. It's one thing we hardly do anymore is reflect, you know, because there's, there's so much information like drinking through, you know, a, a fire hose. Uh, it's just <laughs> overwhelming for so many people. Um, but I really, I really wanted to understand things better. And it started just coming to me and even the, um, the format of the book itself, almost in a design sense, it, it just started coming. It's, it's not written as a normal book. 
Uh, and I, I wrote it as a small book intentionally knowing that again, we live in such a distracted, you know, environment right now. And people, many have lost the enjoyment of a good read, of a deep read, let alone, you know, the time starvation to have time to read it. But it's deceptively small. Just because it's small, like an integrated circuit trip, chip, excuse me, doesn't mean it's just one transistor, it's billions. <laughs> so it's a book that has to be read slowly with a lot of reflection. And for some people who are open to it, they'll actually experience an expansion of their consciousness at certain times. I think it's so important to highlight that it's not an ordinary short book, let alone the content of the book, well, that I'm actually reissuing it, believe it or not, within a few weeks, uh -huh. adding a notice at the front of the book. This is not an ordinary book. You must read it slowly, very slowly, to go deeper with it. Well, um, I read it in two different uh, times. I read half mm -hmm. of it first and then the other half on another day. Mm -hmm. And um, of course, I wanted to read all of it because of preparing for our, mm -hmm. our talk. And all I kept finding out in the book was, oh, yes. Oh, of course, I know what he's talking about. Oh, right. Time. Oh, yes. Oh, remote viewing. Oh, mm -hmm. Edgar Mitchell. Mm -hmm. And I, so I felt like when I was reading it, mm -hmm. I was reading about with someone who I felt like I was on a similar journey of certain things mm -hmm. that happened. But I, I'm not like you. I don't know why the things are happening. I just like experience things and I go through and I just float along. So I'm not an intellectual or a scholar or even a student of any of this, these things, but um, I just flow with what experiences I have and I just try to share them with other people. But you put into words things that I've experienced and uh, I thought how wonderful this is and what a great, in fact, I'm, I've got my daughter's gonna read your book after after uh, we have our, um, our talk. Uh, and later at the end of our talk, I'd love to share some of the exercises that we can with our listeners of things they can do for improving things. Right. But um, I thought what a wonderful thing is that you were combining that, you'd done, that you had done research with science as well as then research with different spiritual uh, teachers or mentors or read the books. So to mm -hmm. me, the combination of science and spirituality is a very validating and uh, uh, wonderful way to present the different things that you're talking about. And some of it's on a very big scale about what's going on in our world and what can we do to change the way things are. So there was a, if, if, if we, while we're talking about reality, you have this question in the book that I really want an answer to for myself mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and as well as the listeners, but how and why are we here? I mean, I've been asking myself that for, and also I've always felt like I didn't get a degree. I'm not a psychiatrist like you. I don't have an MD. So finally, when I was initiated as a shaman, I felt like, okay, now I have something to say in this material world that when someone asks, what are you or what do you do or so I, I'd love for you to shed light with our listeners about how and why we're here. That's a deep question. Back in, yes, and it's another uh, aspect of your question about what is reality or my conception you know, of reality. Um, in part for this one, I, I would refer back to another very um, prominent uh, academic uh, who integrated knowledge East and West, Alan Watts. Yes. Also had a theological background. Mm -hmm. and. And he uses a metaphor, which, which some people might 
you know, think it's disrespectful, but it's not meant that way. Back to what I said earlier, how in my realization of the primacy of consciousness, that only there's one mind, there was an initial sense of almost discomfort and a sense of loneliness. Like, oh my God, then there's no one else really there. It's all like, just, I'm imagining them. Until I realized, I repeated at a deeper level, we're all, all connected. So back to your question. And I apologize for these digressions, but that's how my mind works. No, <laughs> that's why the book covers so many different things. All right, yes, so back, back to Alan Watts. We have um, no schedule, no so, plan. So back to Alan Watts and this notion again that one is a lonely number. What do we do if we're, you know, reasonably aware and intelligent and we have nothing to do and, and we're not tired? We daydream to pass the time. But of course, that's also the source I told you of, you know, everything we develop eventually imagination and intuition as well, if you're open to it. So he suggests that because in a sense, it would be boring to know everything, control everything forever, for infinity, but nevertheless being all powerful, why not spin off some imaginary playmate characters? Like what we're trying to do right now, you know, in cyberspace with virtual realities, which I think is crazy. But anyways, as an aside, so that's the model, you know, or or, or the example that that Alan Watts shares, and and I think it it has some real merit, as long as you don't think it's meant in a derogatory and frivolous way, because it's not. So because no one really has answered the question when you look at you know various religions, of well, why did God create you know the world? They don't answer that question, just God created the world, and then, you know, certain moral codes and so on that, that came out of that. But, but this goes back more to the why question, which is what you're asking is, as well. well. Well, why, if there is a mind of being that knows all, controls all, is, is out of time, so is for, forever and will be forever, why would it want to create us? Why not? I mean, what is consciousness on another level without awareness of something. How can you say you're conscious if there's nothing to be aware of? So it's almost if this deeper mind, oneness, God, universal mind needs us all and all the things that occur in the world for its own fullness, that it becomes even fuller somehow through us. So like an interconnectedness of all of this. Well, it, it, it's generating more and more complexity out of something that was initially very unitary and simple. Mm -hmm. Now, other aspects of that are, even though, as I said, I, I think as I understand the science and how it correlates with the wisdom traditions and my own experience as well, because large part of it is that I call myself a psychonaut. Um, it's not so simple that you say, okay, so because it all comes from the mind, all I have to do is wish for something and it will manifest. Doesn't quite work that way. Um, on the other hand, it's not irrelevant what we think. Thoughts have consequences. And for good or bad. I, I feel like. interrupt here for just one second about the thoughts mm -hmm. because uh, I don't know, maybe when I was in my early twenties or something, my mother who was not uh, particularly an intellect or anything, but she was in the kitchen and she decided to write a little poem about thoughts. Mm -hmm. And I have never forgotten it. She's 95 years old now. Yeah, you were mentioning it earlier. Tells, mm -hmm. tells something about it. Good. Which is, mm -hmm. And it's very simple and, and, and almost childlike. 
Thoughts are things that can grow wings, which fly away and bring back things. Good. Yeah, so out of imagination, we have manifestations. Um, so in my book, as you know, I actually give instructions. If, if you really want to increase the odds in your favor mm -hmm. to manifest things that would be desirable to you that are still in the ethical realm, then I, I give the formula for how you do it. Uh, which I'm sure from your shamanistic training, in part, maybe in different words, you can relate to. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, back to your question again about reality, it's still not so simple. So even if it all comes from the mind, from consciousness, even if you know how to go into deeper consciousness, a deeper level, and you go through the steps of, of how to go from your envisioning to manifestation, it's not just a one-to-one -one correlation. Because I think the universe or everything is intrinsically somewhat random too, intentionally. Because, I mean, think of a TV model, for example. There may be a particular TV program you really enjoy, but would you enjoy watching that program and only that program for the rest of your life? Exactly. You're gonna want something else. Yeah, and, and we have to be careful not to get trapped in our human emotions. You might think, you know, like, um, you know, but it goes back to, to the expression that, you know, the finite mind cannot comprehend or understand the infinite mind, which has some truth to it. But nevertheless, as I tried to show in my book, and it became really weird when it crystallized, it's like obvious. And so in a way, I think my book too provides empirical justification for theology. It's proof of God. Mm -hmm. And going back to what I said with materialism, as I said, it's, it's just a metaphysical assumption. There's no real proof for it. Like, for example, going back to the simple assumption that the brain produces the mind. It's a big assumption. There's no proof of it. All we can prove is if something happens to the brain physically, our consciousness or our behavior may change. That's what we call correlation. There's a relationship. Doesn't mean, though, it's the cause, the origin, the generation of it. If you have, a, again, a, a TV and your TV goes on the blink, it doesn't mean the TV signal is not available on another TV receiver somewhere else. So, or our sales or whatever you know, devices we're talking about. So reception is not the same as generation. Do you think of like, you know, sometimes people say, actually what we're in really is a dream that the, the phys this, this, this part is the dream. And actually maybe our dream is not a, what we think of as a dream when we're sleeping as dream that that really isn't actually a dream, that that's just well, real as the dream that we are in a physical body. Yeah, so first of all, yeah, we are in a dream. <laughs> oh, that's okay. <laughs> um, but it's not just from our limited individual ego. Mm -hmm. It's much, much bigger than that. Another metaphor I use is, you know, I quote Shakespeare, you know, all words on the stage and we're about players on it. We're just part of it. Mm -hmm. But yes, the dreaming part's important, and that's why I have a section in my book, too, as you may recall, on lucid dreaming and how to do it. Uh, and there are cultures, like, for example, the Aboriginal culture in um, Australia that believe that what they call the dream time is more real than what we call our normal waking time. And that, you, and that you can access information and do things like healing things, for example, in that state that are not able to be done or as able to be done in the so-called waking state. So they think it's more important. 
in the Huichol country, who I call it the Huichol country, but they're mm-hmm. in the mountains of Mexico. Mm-hmm. I was just talking about this. Uh, at the end of the ceremony of the peyote, which has gone on for five straight days, mm-hmm. and the men who are in charge have not really been sleeping exactly. Uh, you know, for five days, they've committed to dancing. And mm-hmm. uh, they, they all then at the end of the ceremony, at the end of five years, they all, um, uh, I'm not sure if it's the end of the five years or after every ceremony, mm-hmm. but they all dream together. Mm-hmm. It must be every few years. They dream mm-hmm. together who all the government officials will be. So there isn't like an election where people say, yes, I'd like him to be the head of the police and I'd like him to mm-hmm. be our governor. Mm-hmm. They all sit together in a, in a temple and they all go into dream time together and that's where mm-hmm. the decisions are made. Mm-hmm. And that's very unusual for us to think of in our forms of elections, how they're carried mm-hmm. out. They're mm-hmm. certainly not done in dream time. And I mean, it's done that way today. It's not like- Well, it, it, it's, it's done, I'll say, in a nightmare dream time. Right? <laughs> <laughs> that would be a nightmare, Because <laughs> it's all in the dream. <laughs> yes, all right. But I found that fascinating that mm-hmm. here these men were making their decisions without mm-hmm. speaking to each other, but going in dream time and discussing it in dream time together, like mm-hmm. the aboriginals. So it's um, these Native American people who are still mm-hmm. holding on to- the truth. <laughs> well, we, we, as you know, because we, we, you're more familiar with this than most people, we've lost so much of the indigenous wisdom. Mm-hmm. And at our peril, we wouldn't be having the ecological catastrophes we're experiencing right now if we had honored what they had taught over generations and many generations, like, for example, you know, the concept of thinking seven generations, you know, into the future, the implications of things. We don't. What's a quick buck? Right. You know, or, or what, what, what can we pave over? How can we divert? We think very short term and, and we're paying the price for that big time. And they, they are stewards of the land and, and nature and animals. They're not yes. there to destroy. They're there to take what they need for themselves and make sure that the rest of it con- con- continues to grow. But we wipe everything out. Because, because in the materialistic you know, way of thinking we were caught up in for so long, we think that the physical world outside is not part of us in a sense, like, again, it's not out of the one mind. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like just dead. We're alive. It's dead. So we can just use it and abuse it however we want to. But back to the one mind, it all comes from one source. No, we are still connected to it. And that's why indigenous cultures, they, they honor the land, the food. Mm-hmm. It's not taken for granted. It's not to be exploited. They don't something just to be kill grateful an for. animal. They, when the right. animal is killed, it's done sacredly and honoring the animal. That's right. Not just slaughter. That's right. And not putting them in, you know, mass slaughterhouses as well beforehand. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's like, it's hard to imagine why there can never be this collective consciousness of a peaceful world. What well, prevents that from happening? Well, right now, we definitely don't have it. We, we have a very uh, fragmented um as we speak right now, as you know, hostile world right now. Um, hostile, you know, one in the military sense, but hostile too in terms of, you know, the, the current pandemic from the COVID-19 virus, which keeps mutating more than any virus we're familiar with. The rate of mutation is uh, quite unprecedented. Uh, and then we have the political craziness, you know, as well. I'm not going to go on because this would be a real downer. Right. All right, right. but um, get a nightmare. <laughs> not right. so good right now. Um, but back to your question, like, you know, why can't it be connected? Because we lost the awareness 
and you know reverence for what is the reality we once knew in terms of our ancestors and that's why i actually wrote the book it wasn't just that i was you know it was clicking for me what reality really is after all these years no it was different it was i saw the craziness in the world i had the time to be more aware of the news and all these dimensions i just mentioned a couple of them very superficially and the more i thought of it i thought like oh my god like it's all so wrong it's all so messed up and unnecessary and then i felt obligated because of what i've seen because that i know or think i know mm -hmm. i have to share this and and i have to share it in the form of a global wake-up call now the book title is dream it to do it the science and the magic i'm dreaming this and i'm doing it i'm dreaming it to being a global wake-up call for the entire world that's my dream that's my intention that's what's out there beautiful intention and i hope many will be inspired by it share build on it mm -hmm. so have you yourself had different different um out of body or unusual experiences that have aided in your uh experiences of saying oh there is more to this than time isn't exactly the way we see time you, you know i was wondering if there are any incidents that oh yeah absolutely definitely <laughs> that made those things it wasn't like something you read in a book or no 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 no, no, no. no even that again it still came first from intuition then came the book <laughs> um, for example and this may sound strange to you i remember more precisely in terms of ages Around 12, 13, I started getting really interested in science fiction books, mm -hmm. you know, about astronauts and space stations and all. Important to remember this is I'm talking again over a half century ago. That's before this stuff existed. But in the minds of science fiction writers, they envisioned it. Interesting enough, as well, on the jackets of the books, you know, the, the cover art, many of them had pictures of space stations and, and, and spacesuits, not so dissimilar to what we eventually had decades later. But coming back, when I started reading that around 12, 13, I started to imagine that beyond the, you know, the confines it was obviously what we had here on Earth, some of the other things I talked about, things like teleportation, time travel, mm -hmm. conceptually, which I hadn't thought of before, might be real possibilities. So that's on the intellectual level. But experientially, because I was, had this like inclination very early on to be a scientist and test things out, I used to do some... I feel a little guilty about this right now, but I'm sharing with you. My intentions were still overall good and here today to share this. So I decided to do some experiments. Uh, I'm young at this point, right? I'm around adolescence, young teenager. So for example, I would sit at the back of a bus or a streetcar, and I would focus my gaze on someone right near the front of the car. And my intention was that they, they would just feel this need and urge just turn around and look directly at me. For no reason, I'm not right at the back. I'm not making any noise in the slightest. I'm not wearing anything unusual that they would be curious, like, you know, who's this person back in the bus? And invariably, very quickly, they would look right at me. Then I decided to make it more difficult. So I wouldn't pick on an individual who's just like sitting there by themselves, but somebody in conversation with someone else or somebody, let's say, reading something like some other distraction. And it still worked. And then I started, you know, I, I brought it to a level where 
in one of the courses I taught at the University of Toronto, I did, a, as well as my academic lectures, I did some experiential workshops. And I would have the participants sit in a circle, about 30 people, tell them to close their eyes, just, you know, relax. And if they felt suddenly some sense of connection with me, just open your eyes for a moment, check. If, if you see me looking at you, you know, keep your eyes open. If not, wrong signal, you know, go back. And I got really good at that. In fact, in one of them, the, the head of the division I was teaching in didn't like what the subject matter was about at the University of Toronto. So he was trying to find a reason, I knew he was intuitively, to find some reason to say, you know, thank you for your services, but you know, we don't need you in the future. <laughs> anyway, he, he came to check it out to, guess, to get the goods on me. And we did the circle thing and I got him. And as soon as I got him, he knew it. And he, he never in any way tried to discourage me. And I went on to have, have a much more, you know, flourishing career at the university after that. that so I, I was testing it at early hand. Um, so I was having both <clears throat> spontaneous experiences, what we call premonitions, mm -hmm. precognition more, more technically. Um, there's the telepathy I just told you about. I had some interesting experiences too with psychokinesis, being able to like modify things physically at a distance. Mm -hmm. um, so yes, it, it wasn't just intellectual. I say the interest started intuitively, but I definitely also had experiences. Can you give me a psychokinesis example? Well, some of this gets into crazyville. Um, oh. <laughs> this is one I, I, I shared with uh, Dr. Stanislav Groff a long time ago. Mm -hmm. but Wonderful man. There was an occasion when I was trying to uh, get my fireplace lit and I was having um, difficulty. You know, sometimes you uh, just get smoldering. It just doesn't, you know, take very well. You use some kindling or something else to try and ignite it. Anyway, it was one of those situations where I, it just was refusing to really develop into a roaring fire I wanted to be. And so I crouched down <laughs> in front of the fireplace and I imagined I was like a dragon that could blow out fire. My girlfriend was at the side when this happened. Uh, there was no one else in the room. We were in our, our um, living room at the time. And immediately with my first exhalation, it, it flamed into a huge roaring fire. Wonderful. And my girlfriend was freaked. She was like freaked out. <laughs> So that's one example. Uh, others have been with. That's a great people, example. You know, with, with healing, like someone having a asthmatic tightening of their chest. Mm -hmm. I put my hand on the other side and it just, you know, relaxes right away. I, I don't put myself out as a healer, by the way. I never did. Although I did become skilled enough to work with telepathy sometimes in clinical psychotherapy. And again, many years ago, I was actually invited to go down, believe it or not, to the World Congress of Psychiatry to present my work on using telepathy and psychotherapy. And that started with uh, a young patient I had who was a psychology student who'd um, become very depressed and gotten into a rather autistic type state, minimal communication with anyone, wouldn't even make eye contact. And I was just starting out as my first year of residency in psychiatry, just, you know, a newbie. And um, she was one of the patients I was assigned to care for. And I, I had my own office and I'd bring her down to my office and try and talk to her and there was nothing. Um, and then when the time was up, I say, okay, you know, you don't want to talk, show a door and just walk out. Um, this happened a few times and I knew on the ward <clears throat> that was how people experienced her. She just was vacant. So 
on another session, I decided to do something a little different. She's sitting there again, looking down. I have this on video, by the way, I still have it. Right. Um, we did a program later on where she testified, you know, how she experienced it as well. So she's just looking down in her own, you know, withdrawn world. And I just sent out the intention. I really, really want to help you. I, I, I want to. It's not so much words, right? It's, 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 it's an intention. Um, but mm -hmm. basically it was, I want to help you. I want to help comfort you. And then again, really quickly, 30 seconds, 40 seconds, her head shoots up, her eyes look right at me. She said, how did you get into my head? Seriously. You know, I've often wondered if there would be more, I'm not, if there'd be more psychiatrists working in the field that have the amount of information that you had in your work, that there's some people I think that get diagnosed and put on medications that do not need to be put on medications. They just need to be heard. And what they're experiencing could be another level of consciousness or out of body or you know, experiencing hearing voices from a spirit, things that can happen that you and I may know is a very real possibility and not anything uh, uh, made up, but mm -hmm. those persons don't get seen or heard by the right psychiatric uh, uh, persons and they end up on a life where they, I almost feel like their soul gets taken away from them by the amount of drugs. Cause when you and see it, them- And it can, I know they're devitalized. I know you take away their consciousness in a sense. Yeah. So a few things on that. Um, one, I agree with you. I think, I think many people are misdiagnosed because they're not understood. Mm -hmm. The second thing I want to say is that even for the more common so-called mental health disorders, psychiatric disorders, like let's say depression, for example, and anxiety, or even maybe anger management. The approach now is largely still, you know, a pharmacological one for those conditions. And it doesn't cure them. No one I think, claims it cures people. It maybe again, takes away, you know, some of the symptoms. Uh, and I think even some of the so-called benefit people feel is placebo because they expect to feel a benefit. Mm -hmm. But what I find interesting in, in the field of psychiatry right now, as you may know, there's a sudden interest in the uh, indigenous plants that alter consciousness. You, yeah. you mentioned, you know, uh, um, you know magic mushrooms, psilocybin, yes. uh, some synthetic things, MDMA, uh, new molecules are being formed all the time. But the interesting thing is that, so now they're starting to think of working with people who have severe intractable depression or conditions like PTSD, which just don't respond very well to conventional therapy, whether it's chemical or you know uh, actual talking psychotherapy, and using instead psychedelic drugs. Interesting. So what they're now starting to move towards is helping people who are in mental anguish, distress, or limited by changing their consciousness. And. The psychedelics are very different than things like antidepressants and sedatives. Yes. It's not that they simply stimulate or knock out part, you know, of a circuit of part of your brain. They, in a sense, remove the brain filtering. When we look at the electrical signaling of the brain when someone's on the psychedelic, I'm talking about the chemicals right now, there's actually less activity going on in the thinking part of the brain, not more, less. It's getting out of the way. Mm -hmm. It's not as filtered. That's what, when anyone asks me, how do I do remote viewing or 
how does this information come to me that you would call psychic mm -hmm. or any of this? And I had talked to Dean Radin about it once when I was kind of trying to figure out how I operated. Mm -hmm. And he said, you don't have any filters. <laughs> that's the problem. He said, it's not a problem, but that's how come you operate that way. Mm -hmm. He said, where other people have to go through these different filters. So the information gets, yes. you know, kind of clouded or where, where when you don't have filters, it just comes through. And um, the other thing that I say when they ask me these things is the best way that I can describe it is that I have to put myself to the side. Mm -hmm. So if I could just get out of my way, Yes, information comes through. And that's a pretty good description of really what has to be done. You have to get out of the way of your own sort of ego. So that there's two levels of filtering. One, if you want to call this physical in a sense, but again, it's just a manifestation of mind. It's constant, it's creates mind, but, but also, you know, on, on a more conventional level as well. I, I, I also can say I have reports from friends who have been microdosing and working with therapists mm -hmm. and are having experiences where they're finding joy in their life that they had mm -hmm. not been able to have that mm -hmm. one of them I just spoke to a couple of days ago he said I've had depression for 20 years he mm -hmm. said I've been microdosing with um, psilocybin mushrooms very mm -hmm. very tiny amounts it's not mm -hmm. like they're he's not going into colors and vision mm -hmm. any of this mm -hmm. and he says he does it every day a very small amount and it has changed his life and another friend of mine she worked with a therapist of mine that I had used, which is how we met. And he was using MDMA or MDA mm -hmm. or one of those. MDMA, MDMA probably. Mm -hmm. And she said it, it, the amount of work that she was able to accomplish in moving on in her life and mm -hmm. getting over her PTSD mm -hmm. with that was unbelievable in comparison to talking therapy, yep. you know, just going and seeing somebody. Right. So you're familiar with it, you know, from those examples yourself. And it's just starting to really become a big movement in, in psychiatry and even. Strange enough, we're in a capitalist world. The business community is investing heavily in that area right now as well. Right. Um, but yeah, that's the interesting thing about it, though. These are very uh, potent uh, resources. However, when I'm talking about using it therapeutically, I'm talking about, you know, in a special setting where you have uh, a responsible person, a knowledgeable person doing the guiding, as they would do in the indigenous cultures. But when people are just popping recreational drugs on their own, you don't know what you're getting, like um, contamination-wise, right. or the dosage, <laughs> and you don't necessarily have a good guide who knows how to help you go through things. Because I've also seen patients who become schizophrenic from unsupervised use of things like LSD. So it's true. I mean, people can also go crazy with it. So it, it makes everything more fluid. And unless you have someone trusted, knowledgeable guiding you, well, and it could be a negative you know, outcome. This one person I know, he is looking into, I guess they call it, it's, he's, they're calling it some sort of psychedelic therapy mm -hmm. where it's a set, you know, a set amount of dose and a set time, mm -hmm. that special environment mm -hmm. with certain guided things to go through mm -hmm. the experience. And he said, he's just beginning this. And I'm thinking, when he was telling me, I'm thinking, this is a new business, you know? but apparently it is. Mm -hmm. People yeah. are becoming guides. <laughs> they big, big, it is. So I, I want to, you know, we're getting close. We, we, we're, we're getting close to our hour and I still have a mm -hmm. bunch of things I wanted to ask you. I, this might deviate for just a second, but it was something I just mm -hmm. wanted to know. So you mm -hmm. can just say a second mm -hmm. on it. But what is Sintrek? You say it's a, um, 
consultancy. Consultancy. Consultancy for. So it's my company in which I do my corporate training and consultation and executive coaching. And I've, I've had this going for many years. As I said, I'm curious. I have great need for stimulation. I don't like just doing one thing. Right. That's good. So do you mean like. But, but let me just say, too, back to your question, you know, the, the purpose of that company is to increase what I call collaborative intelligence. Strangely enough, even though it has to do with parapsychology. Mm-hmm. But, but that's the, the key, you know, performance enhancement and collaborative intelligence. So does the company come to you and then you set them on the on a particular track that way? Is that? It, it different variations. I mean, I've, I've, so my international work has been in, in places like um, Malaysia, uh, <laughs> Singapore. Um, I've been all over the U.S., so some of it is sometimes uh, a training session, sometimes it's workshops, sometimes it's keynotes. Again, I love the variety and I want it to stay that way. I like the yes. variety. Well, and also um, that variety, you get exposed to all these different kinds of people where you mm-hmm. can tell them about things that might not be things they were really going to be discussing in their life because that's not, you know, you're, you're going to be able to you bring to them so many different aspects. Mm-hmm. That's very wonderful. So we, t- we touched a little bit on imagination, but I really wanted to, because to, mm-hmm. I really, th- that, that was very important in the book. And I wanted mm-hmm. to, to talk about this so that people could mm-hmm. understand about the power mm-hmm. of imagination. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if you could so, shift light uh, there. So, so putting it in a nutshell, because now we're, we're pressed for time, although I'm flexible. No, take, your time on, take your time okay. on imagination. So, so uh, a soundbite that you know people could understand and memorize to like an earworm would be one that goes back to Napoleon Hill, the motivational author who I cite in my book as well. So this is a a simpler version of of saying something that's much more complex. And the way he puts it is this, whatever the mind can conceive and believe, it can achieve. So back to your question with imagination. So the first part obviously is conceiving it, imagining it. But the second part's critical, belief. It has to be like one point in this mind Another example I give to illustrate this in a physical sense yes. is the example in the martial arts where they teach young kids to smash wooden boards with their bare hand. And I actually had this experience with my, my young son when he was nine or 10 or something like that. He did a demonstration with his class. I was amazed and it was a bare hand, real wood. It wasn't balsa wood. Um, and I saw him afterwards, no mark on his hand whatsoever. And no one said, ouch, they did it. <laughs> I was curious because I'm curious. And I said to him, how'd they teach you to do that? This is my book too. He said, they taught them not to hit the board, to strike beyond the board or through the board. So back to the belief part. See, you, you have to have that level of imagination. It's not enough to just like have a wishful light fantasy or something. Right. You've really got to believe. It could happen. I can make it happen. Or we can make it happen. And really just go for it. I mean, even my book, I, from starting to write it to it's physically being published, I'm told this is kind of a record, it was five months. Wow. But again, I, I felt, as I said to you, uh, called, I felt an obligation. I have to get this out as fast as I can. And it came out in mid-November of 2021. And look what's happened just since in the world in a very, very negative way. And I won't go into it in detail, but Mm-hmm. it's going in the wrong direction big time. I, that's why I feel the urgency. I think there's still a window of opportunity to change things, to go back to your point. So we get along. We are connected. We have to remember that. And when you remember that, we would treat each other differently. 
you don't give your left hand a hard time because it's part of you. <laughs> and we have to have that felt connection with other people again. In 1969, I was in the, I don't know, 10th row center at Woodstock. Mm -hmm. and to the left of me painting, a guy went up and he painted, we are one across the, the wood. Mm -hmm. And I experienced the amazing experience of truly feeling that mm -hmm. we are one in that mo in those few days of being with close to half a million people in every adverse condition with no water, no gas, no foods, no, you know, people having getting, you know, having reactions to drugs, mm -hmm. all the different mm -hmm. things that went on. And yet it was nothing but a we are one experience. It was a proof to the world that that mm -hmm. could really happen. And I, I, people say, why do you think it did? And it never did in all the other com concerts that ever happened after like that. And I'm wondering, was it the amount of drugs that people did? Was it the moment? Was it the, whatever it was, it proved that this is really possible. And it, it somehow, and they, to this day, they, I mean, I've just had the 50 year anniversary back mm -hmm. a few years ago in 2019. Mm -hmm. There's, they, they, they revived this thing, but why couldn't this thing be, not something that you're remembering from the beginning. Yeah. Um, how should I say we, we've become corrupted with materialism. Mm -hmm. um, we've been too caught up in the individualization of egos. And when you said uh, earlier, some version of, you know, you had to learn from Dr. Raiden's discussion not to have filters because you get, you know, beside yourself, mm -hmm. you're not in the way. Um, and I mentioned earlier, one of the things that I enjoyed just in our brief, you know, experience of knowing each other is you have this childlike openness, whereas many adults are more prim and proper because they want to make the right impression. And so you have that as a gift. I think Dr. Stanley Krippner has that as a gift too. Mm -hmm. I think I may be developing it. It took a long time now because I don't care what people think of me at this point. I don't care if they question my, my sanity or my scholarship. I want them at least to hear the message and think about it. I, I just feel that's so much more important than what someone thinks of me. Mm -hmm. And I actually, I don't know if you know this, I self-published this book. I didn't, I, because traditional publishers take at least one to two years after they accept a manuscript. They don't accept it right away. Often they sit them back revisions. And I, I don't have that time. And I have published with, you know, the regular uh, publishing uh, route, my first book, for example, so it's not that I, I couldn't do it that way in terms of the ability to do it that way. Like I felt the timers was such, I had to put my own money into it. It just, mm -hmm. and it has nothing to do with earning anything, but I just want a better world and I want to share what I've learned. I, I have to say that's actually why I'm doing my podcasts. I know. Because I just want, you know, like I don't have it, I'm not, I don't, I don't make any money doing this. I don't mm -hmm. have any desire to make any money doing mm -hmm. this. My only motivation is to be yep. able to share real stories from mm -hmm. real people mm -hmm. and to, you know, I feel like, you know, maybe a hundred people listen, maybe a thousand people listen, but if one person out of any of those really gets something out of it, then to me, it was all, it's all worth, that's what it's about. Yeah. And I think the same way with my book, you know, I mean, I hope it reaches more than one person in terms of right. insight and motivates them to, approach things very differently for the benefit of us all. But even if it's just one person, and it may also be one person, if we, if we survive on this level, you know, 50 years, 
into the future or 100, 200, and try to understand what, what do they do wrong? And they'll see my book and understand. I don't know. <laughs> but my intention at this point in my dream is that it gets out there quickly now while there's still some time. And that, and, and that, and the people read it and make a change. Yes. So what I'd like to do as our last, I have two last things that I would like to do. One was, um, is there a simple breathing or any particular technique you might be able to just share one of with our audience so that if, if they're waiting to get your book from Amazon, they can start doing it before it comes. And um. then- Mm-hmm. Finally, after that, any of your last words of wisdom, because I feel you have so much to give. Thank you. Well, I don't know what the last words will be yet, because I'm not there yet. The last <laughs> well, I remember it about the breathing, right? Because that yeah. is one of the exercises in the book. And because the reality is, on this level, we're living in a phenomenally stressful time, un- unprecedented in any of our waking memories in, on this level, as I put it. It's horrific. Uh, and you know, even in my work in healthcare, many of my colleagues are burning out. Uh, it, it's affecting us all in some way, to some degree. I even uh, read a scientific study just recently saying that the level of stress that's going on right now is even causing physical inflammation of the brain. And it's one of the reasons we're seeing more brain fog complaints. It's not just long COVID uh, that's also been caught. So back to your question and let me try to answer it in a way that I hope will be helpful for everybody. Most of the wisdom traditions place a great emphasis on the breath. It's also uh, a keystone of many meditation techniques. And it is something that once you understand how to work with it, which I'll explain in a few moments, you can actually sort of speak, have some control, almost like levers to change which part of your nervous system is operating. So now to be a little more specific about it. The largest nerve in our human body is the vagus nerve. Mm-hmm. And the vagus nerve goes down to the heart and the abdominal organs. When we breathe more deeply from the belly, we sometimes call it diaphragmatic breathing, so your belly moves out somewhat, we're stimulating the vagus nerve. The vagus nerve has a relaxation effect on the brain. It's the opposite of the stress response. In addition to stimulation of the vagus nerve, if we slow, I'll go over this in steps in a moment, let's do some background. If we slow our breathing down, we change the the ratio of various gases that are in the air that get into our lungs, particularly between oxygen and carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide can dissolve somewhat in fluid, such as the plasma of our blood. So when it goes into our chest, gets into the bloodstream, it can dissolve and it's acidic. So it can change what we call the pH value, the acid base level of the entire body. Mm-hmm. So all of the metabolism of the body chemically now can be changed as we change that ratio from the way we change our breathing. So we have the vagus nerve working for us and now we have in the chemistry aspect of it. A third one is by choosing to take control intentionally of doing this work, you're already quieting the noise and already starting to self-regulate yourself. So now let me give you the steps. So you want your breathing and repeat to be from the belly area, the abdomen. Sometimes I've told people to place their palm, their hand on the belly button area, the umbilical area. So you actually feel when you take a deep breath in that it's pushing out some on your hand, like when you blow up a balloon. And when you release the balloon, the air goes out. And similarly, when you breathe out, 
you feel less pressure on your hand. You may actually see it physically move a little bit as you do that. So that's one part of getting into the deeper breathing. But we also want to change the timing and the speed a little bit. So we want the breathing to be slower. And we want the in-breath, the inhalation, to be about half as long as the exhalation, the out-breath. So it's like a two-to-one ratio. So again, breathing in. Let's say we're breathing in on a count of three. One, two, three. Breathing out to a count, let's say six. One, two, three, four, five, six. And then you want to have a pause between the in-breath and the out-breath in both directions. So the inhalation, pause, slow, exhalation, pause, inhalation. So that in itself, I repeat to you, physiologically, on this level of us being physical beings, can within minutes, and I mean this, within a couple of minutes, call down regulation of the nervous system, just help you calm down, be more centered. It's not a spiritual thing, it's just physiological. But now you're also more open, you're thinking clearer. So, so that, again, would be the breathing technique I would recommend broadly, given what's going on. Now, the other side of this, related to the, you know, the other content in my book, and apologize if I'm going too long here. No, you're not, you're not. Is that you can also learn in that gap between, as I said, the in-breath and the out-breath in both directions, the space, that you actually have the opportunity to take a deeper dive into the deeper part of your mind, to experience a little more of the one-mind territory. And you know, the, uh, from the Testament, the kingdom of God is within you. So it, that simple little technique has so many you know, different benefits. I think that's a wonderful thing that you share this with our listeners, because sometimes people just hear, oh, you're, you're having anxiety, just take a deep breath, breathe deep. But they're not really being given an actual little um, plan to, 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 of how to breathe. Mm -hmm. And so it may not work for them. And then they think, oh, this isn't working for me. So I think this was a very good exercise Thank to you. share. And um, is there any other words of wisdom that you'd want to tell our listeners today? And take your time. We have plenty. Of, it's, it's, it's all good. I, I just share my intention that we're all one, we're all connected. We've lost that natural sense of it, but it's real. We need to regain it. Our world's an incredible peril now, it's dying. And there's such needless pain right now. And it's needless. We can connect again. We can befriend each other, help each other collaboratively, relate more harmoniously with our ecosphere, with, with the physical world around us. And I, I hope I help inspire or teach others to realize this and go for it that's my wish well thank you very 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 much it really was a pleasure having I'm... you here today and i have to tell um i just want to tell our listeners about our funny little opening because we've <laughs> never met uh until today and so we mm -hmm. never spoke to each other so i we had a five minute hello and i i had thought to myself so this is how my mind works. As I was going to have this talk, all I kept saying to myself was, I, I know he says his name is Howard, but I want to I call him Edward. Mm -hmm. And then I said to myself, 
well, you don't tell somebody that, then you don't even know this man. Why would you just all of a sudden tell him this out of nowhere? So then my other mind steps in and says, because it came out of nowhere. So you're supposed to tell him, that's why. And so I just said to myself, well, I'm just going to tell him anyway, and I'm not going to judge why I'm doing this. Mm -hmm. And for our audience, it was very fine to know. It was very sweet to know that actually your middle name is Edward and it's nowhere on your book. And you did mm -hmm. let me know that it's not popularly said that your name is Howard mm -hmm. Edward. So mm -hmm. I felt between that and our connections on emails that we would cross exactly mm -hmm. as you were asking me, I was answering you. I felt mm -hmm. like we were making connection right. before we physically actually became together like this in the body. And that's I just right. wanted to share that Beautiful. with our audience yeah. because that's real. And that just happened. It sure and did. Yeah. And, and I just mm -hmm. love, I love seeing your smile and feeling like we both also know about joy. So I want to so thank much. you so much for being here. And audience, listeners, thank you for being here today. I hope you enjoyed our show as much as we do. And I hope that um, you come back and watch our, our future shows and that you like, subscribe, you tell your friends, you share, and you have comments. I want everyone to know I always answer all the questions that you send. It just takes me a little while, but I will answer anything that I can when I get it. So thanks so much for being here. Have a great week. And we'll see you in two weeks for our next show. Bye.